This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. There goes the fly ball towards left field. Going back fast is Kennedy. Kennedy gets there, and he takes it. And the Cleveland Indians are the world champions of 1948. And they are leaping joyously as they go off the field. Bearden is being mobbed as our rule will draw. And out in center field, Tucker and Kennedy come running in arm in arm. Little tap up in the air, third base side, waiting is Tommy. Foul territory, the game is over. And the Indians have won the divisional title. Indian fans have waited 41 years. And now they can really cheer. Down the pitch. Swung on, lined to deep left field. It is gone! You should see the celebration! Out of the Indians, third base dugout, Rajay Davis, a bullet, two-run homer, down the left field line, clearing the 19-foot wall. We are tied at six. This is Our Tribe History, presented by Progressive. A regular look back at professional baseball history in Cleveland, since 1901 and beyond. Now, here's your host, Indians team historian, Jeremy Fedor. Hello, Tribe fans, and welcome back to another episode of Our Tribe History, presented by Progressive. I am your host, team historian, Jeremy Fedor. Now, this is the second part of a two-part episode on Tribe all-star catcher, Ray Fossey. And what we left off last time was right after the collision with Pete Rose in the 1970 All-Star Game. And things uh, didn't look great for Ray. He had badly injured his shoulder and had a a rough time finishing that season. Ray's 1971 season wasn't actually that bad. His numbers were very comparable to 1970s. In some areas, they dipped a little, and in some areas, they were a little better, and he earned himself another trip to the All-Star Game that year, as well as his second gold glove as catcher for the Indians. One of the pitchers that Ray was fortunate to catch was tribe legend Sam McDowell, and by the end of 1971, Sam's time in Cleveland was coming to an end. He had been a six-time All-Star for Cleveland and had finished pretty high in the Cy Young voting as well during his time with the Tribe. But, you know, like all good things, uh, sometimes they must come to an end, and Sam's time in Cleveland was, was headed there. But Gaylord Perry, catching Sam McDowell in 1970, the only year he won 20 games, Sam McDowell probably could have won and should have won 20 games every year. Four of the best pitches I ever caught 
and, um, you know, could have been a Hall of Famer. Unfortunately, it didn't happen. But as it turned out, Gaylord and Sam were traded for each other. Sam going to San Francisco and Gaylord coming to the Athletics. And, of course, Gaylord went on to win the Cy Young and actually the first pitcher to win the Cy Young Award in both leagues. And I was fortunate to catch him in 72 when he won it in the American League. During the offseason of 1971, and you see it in the Plain Dealer, the tribe was looking to see what they could get for McDowell. And the Plain Dealer had a headline, Indians study bids for McDowell. And they listed a few potential uh, transactions that would benefit the tribe, including one with San Francisco that would include Gaylord Perry. Soon thereafter, the tribe was... Uh, able to make that trade to San Francisco, and they acquired not only Gaylord Perry, but Frank Duffy for Sam McDowell. And it was a very beneficial trade for Cleveland as Gaylord would go on to win his Cy Young Award with the tribe. And then the hair raised recollections of of working with Gaylord are pretty interesting. You'd expect that with a, a spitball pitcher like Gaylord, who there's always that shroud of uh, of uncertainty or the mystery of, uh, you know, is he throwing it? Is he not? And I have to imagine it'd be pretty difficult as a catcher catching a spitballer when you hadn't been catching one for the last couple of years. 1972, probably uh, after the fact of the 1970 season, but to catch Gaylord Perry in 1972 and to go through that entire season catching him. And, and I remember being in Acapulco, uh, my wife and I, we were there. I was a player representative for the Cleveland Indians. And this was the winter of uh, 1971 and we were there and it was during the trading period of time and uh, my wife and I were having dinner and Gary Perry came over and he sat down and he said hey Podnik can you catch it and that was kind of my introduction to Gaylord but to go through the 72 season to catch him uh, 342 innings he had 40 starts 40 decisions 24 and 16 a Cy Young Award winner and uh you know, to, to hear him at the end when they had the Man of the Year awards given and he won the Cy Young Award and he said, I could not have done it without my catcher, Ray Fossey. I mean, that was special that Gaylord would even consider saying that because this was a an award that he won on his own, basically. But he did tell me at the beginning of the season that I know nothing about the America League, so I'm going to rely on you to help me with the hitters uh, because been in the National League his entire career prior to that 72 season. He was unaware of the, the players in the American League. But to catch him and then fast forward to 73 in spring training uh, to be catching him in the exhibition game. The Plain Dealer had a pretty great description of uh, Gaylord Perry. It went to say, if the batters want to believe Perry cheats, why that's all right with him. It just gives him a little bit more to worry about. And Perry coaxes him along into his web of deception constantly making motions with his hands around the area of his face and cap. Because of this, Gaylor has to submit to much indignity. How would you like to be frisked in full view of 50,000 people? The worst part comes when umpires make him take off his cap, for Gaylord's hairline is hell-bent for the back of his nogging. So far, no umpires have asked him to remove his pants. So maybe not all the time, 50,000 fans, as you know, many people like to point out when we post photos of Municipal Stadium, there were a lot of empty seats, and... Uh, uh, but nevertheless, Gaylord would get into the heads of the batters he was facing because, you know, you're always worried about, is he going to throw the spitter? Look, he's moving his hand towards his hat. Is he getting something? And uh, a very, uh, very psychological pitcher, and it has to definitely help his cause when these guys are thinking one thing, maybe sitting on the spitter, and 
get a fastball for strike three. Gaylord Perry, we were in spring training in uh, 1972, and it was a photo day. And the photographer said, Ray, why don't you go out the mound? We're at Higher Cobra Field on the main field, and Gaylord was, was throwing. And the photographer said, Ray, why don't you go out and like you're meeting with Gaylord on the mound and talking? And they took a picture. And they, when I got out there, Gaylord said, hey, Panda, since you're here, let me, put, let me show you where I put it. And Reach made the baseballs, and there was a circle on the uh, horseshoe side of the baseball. And he said, if the umpire ever asked to see the baseball, just wipe your thumb over it. See, the reason I talk about Gaylord is because he wrote a book called Me and the Spitter. And so he talked about, and Gaylord would always say, I only threw what my catcher would call. Well, it was a pitch that was, uh, it was a special pitch. And uh, Gaylord was a tremendous pitcher. He was a type of pitcher who, when he took the mound, he didn't want to leave the game. And I remember Ken Aspermani, there was one specific time that Gaylord was on the mound and, and Ken Aspermani went out and said, Gaylord, how do you feel? And he said, better than the guy in the bullpen. I'm staying. Okay. And, and he walked off the mound. Uh, Ken Aspermani did. So Gaylord, if you do the math, 40 starts, that's 360 innings without extra innings. 360. Gaylord Perry, 1972, pitched 342 innings, 29 complete games. A sub two earn run average, 24 and 16 record of one save. The one save came in Kansas City when Gaylord was behind home plate in his street clothes, charting the game. And that's what pitchers did who pitched, going to pitch the next game did. Ken Aspermani looked up, got his attention, said, Come down. He said, What? Well, he came down and got dressed, went to the bullpen, and saved the game. So Gaylord's numbers in 72, 24, 16, and one. And that save came with uh, with the Indians in Kansas City against the Royals. So to catch him every fourth day. Uh, There's a story that Ray likes to recall about his time with Gaylord. Uh, it involves a department store called Gaylord's and a situation that ended up playing itself out in real life during a game. We did a commercial. Gaylord, there was a, a department store in Cleveland in 1972 called Gaylord's Department Store. And the late Bill Kunkel was the umpire. We did a commercial on a Monday, it's an off day. Minnesota Twins are coming in on Tuesday for a three-game series. So the commercial was basically, I was catching Bill Kunkel, the umpire, Gaylord pitching, uh, Jack Brohammer, second baseman. So there was a meeting on the mound because at that time, uh, there was a, a meeting or the American League president had said that at any time, when an opposing manager thinks that a pitcher, not just you, Gaylord, was throwing an illegal pitch, they could ask to check the baseball. Well, this commercial was, you know, kind of around that time uh, after that that new rule had been implemented in the American League or maybe Major League Baseball. But the, the commercial kind of went where Bill Kunkel walks out and I walk out with him, which I really I was not allowed to do under normal circumstances, but in this commercial I did. So we get to the mound. And Bill Conker said, Gaylord, I have to check you. And Gaylord said to me, Ray, where are you going tonight? He said, I think I'm going to Gaylord's. He goes, Gaylord's? He said, yeah, Gaylord's department store. So we, we did this 30-second commercial, Gaylord representing Gaylord's department store. So fast forward the next night against the Twins. Uh, I, Gaylord's throwing an unbelievable pitch that ball is dropping off the table. I mean, you know, obviously, you know, he was, he was loading it up. It, you know, it was working tremendously well. Frank Quality was the manager. And uh, – I kept looking over and said, what are you doing? Don't, don't you see the way it's – and finally he comes walking out. And I said to Bill Conkle, because he happened to be behind the plate umpire in that game. And I said, hey, Conk, look who's coming out. He goes, oh, no. And I said, oh, yes. And so I stayed at home plate because, again, that was the rule. Bill Conkle went to the mound 
and talk to Gaylord. And, you know, I, I kind of remember, I think I went with him because Jack Brohammer came in from second. Gaylord was on the mound. I walked out with Kunkel, and I was laughing. We get to the mound, and we redid the commercial as if we had done it the day before in the off day, exactly the same way. We were laughing on the mound, and here's Frank Quillis. saying, what are you guys laughing about? This is a serious matter. And get back to the home plate, and, and Kunkel said, there's nothing there. But the fact that we redid that commercial as if it had just happened, it, it couldn't have been scripted any better than that to do it the next game or the next day after we had done that commercial. But I remember Rod Carew, a tremendous hitter, playing for the Twins. He would come up and he'd say, you know, these guys, these hitters are socking themselves out. They come back, they think, oh, you know, he's throwing this, this illegal pitch. And, you know, they're, they're just mentally unprepared. I said, yeah, you're right, Rodney. And Gaylord threw three of the most unbelievable balls, started about knee high and ended up almost in the dirt. And Rodney went back to the dugout shaking his head as if I knew what he was thinking. Well, maybe the hitters are right. But it, it was it was fun to have hitters come up and, and talk about it. I was going, no, it's just a, he's got a great sinker today. I would never, ever say anything about what he was throwing. But obviously, uh, you're trying to hit that ball. It's, it's something that's impossible. And to be honest with you, in 1970, two years before I faced Gaylord, I got a base hit down the right field line. I had faced Gaylord in spring training because we trained in Arizona with the Indians of Tucson and uh, uh, the Giants were in Phoenix at the time. And I actually went in that all-star game facing Gaylord Perry thinking he was going to throw a spitter and I was going to hit it. And then I got a base hit down the right field line because I was late on the swing thinking that it was going to be a, a spitter or a Vaseline ball. And then when I caught him in 72, I said, how stupid was I to think you can't hit it. You can't look for it to hit it. But I happened to get a base hit and, uh, you know, it was just, uh, you know, pretty special time. But Gaylord, that's that year in 72, again, like the 70 season being an all-star, but catching Gaylord in 72, it was a memorable season. And for him to uh, to win the Cy Young Award, winning 24 games with a team really that didn't win that many games or had no chance to win. But when he took the mound, it was a pretty good chance that the Indians were going to win. As Ray mentioned, there was a, a mutual respect between Gaylord and Ray. And after Gaylord was awarded the Cy Young Award, he was quoted as saying, in reference to his brother winning it, it adds a little more honor to the family with, along with Jim's award. We're trying to keep it in the family. And then he then mentions Ray Fossey as the major contributor in the capturing the highest honor a major league pitcher can receive. He said, I'm very proud of the guys, said Perry. The only thing I wanted when I came here was pitch every fourth day. In my last year with the Giants, I pitched every fifth day, which didn't help. The guy I owe this award to most, though, is Ray Fossey. He kept pushing me in games where I didn't have good stuff. I have to compare Fossey with Tom Haller, my catcher with the Giants, and I have great respect for Haller. So again, he goes on to say that his only his only slump in the August season or of the 1972 season was that August, and Gaylord took blame for it because he said, uh, "Then I was shaking off Ray's signs. If you get away from the pattern he sets up for you, that's when you're going to get your ears pinned back. You're going to look for early showers." So again, a uh, great working relationship between Gaylord and Ray, and again, Gaylord really speaks highly of Ray and how he helps him win the Cy Young Award. And you look to see what was going to happen maybe in 1973-1974 with this combo, but it wasn't meant to be. In the papers on March 25th, 1977, it said, Tribe gets Duncan in Fossey trade. Ray Fossey, one of the Indians' most popular players and the acknowledged team leader, was traded to the Oakland Athletics Saturday in a deal that left most of his teammates stunned. 
acquired by the tribe in exchange for Fossey, our, and shortstop Jack Heideman were catcher Dave Duncan and outfielder George Hendrick. So, again, this team was left in shock. And, um, you know, you look at the plain dealer from that time, too, and the letters to the uh, sports editor were not positive. And Ray actually had a, uh, a Ray Fossey fan club. There is a, a young lady who was president of it, and she sent a note saying, just a short note to wish Ray Fossey the best of everything with the Oakland A's. He's done a lot for Cleveland baseball over the last few seasons, and you can be assured he will be missed by teammates and fans alike. Having been his fan club president for the past five years, I've come to know Ray pretty well and know he is not only one heck of a ball player, but an all-star person, and that's important too. So from all those associated with the Ray Fossey fan club, goodbye and good luck, Ray. Thanks for a job well done. And again, the plane dealer said, we have received no letters favoring the trade. The Fosse, or the posse against the trade of Fossey will return if the tribe starts turning bossy. That's quite the uh, alliteration. Nevertheless, and uh, Ray ended up finding out about the trade from a teammate. And if he actually would have stayed in his car a little longer, like his draft, he would have found out through the radio. And here's uh, Ray's story on the trade. And then to find out, actually, my wife, Carol, and I were riding and driving around. It was an off day in Tucson. We were driving around and got back to the apartment complex. And John Lowenstein had an apartment next to us. And there was a note on my door. And he said, uh, when you get back, knock on my door. Well, I did. Knocked on the door. And uh, John Lowenstein said, he didn't tell me I was traded. He said, go down to the stadium. Phil Sagan wants to see you. And so I went to the stadium. And that's when Phil Sagan told me that I'd been traded to Oakland. And the funny thing about it, if Carol and I had been driving around a little bit longer, we would have heard the trade on the radio because Charlie Finley said, I don't care about anybody knowing this. You know, let's announce it right now. And, you know, Monty Moore tells me to this day that Charlie would tell him about a trade during the game and tell him to announce it. And their guys in the bullpen listening to the radio had no clue what was going on. So I, I, after hearing Monty say that, a uh, longtime broadcaster for the A's, uh, then it was not that out of the ordinary for what Charlie Finley wanted to do. But but the thing that Gaylord said, and he's he's been quoted as saying, he said, how could you trade our captain? And, you know, I was devastated because I had – signed with Cleveland. I had gone through the organization. I had played in the major leagues. I'd been an all-star and then to be traded uh, because I grew up collecting baseball cards of Stan Musial and, and, and many, many players who prior to free agency, they were with, and we all knew that once we signed with a team, we were with that team for our entire life until that team decided what they want to do with us. So my goal and my dream was to stay as a Cleveland Indian my entire career they settled in Cleveland, worked for the Indians, do whatever. And then reality set in when I was traded uh, to the Oakland A's in 73. And, and, and you know, I, I, again, I was devastated. And, and I'll never forget traveling from Tucson to Mesa where the A's were tra- uh, training at Rendezvous Park. And Dick Williams said, well, first of all, Charlie said, I want you to show up in Mesa so we can take some t- uh, pictures for the the yearbook and Dick Williams said so many words about the pictures. He said, you've got 10 days to learn this pitching staff and Catcher Hunter was the first guy I caught and then caught Kenny Holtzman by the blue and John blue moon, Odom four man rotation, 1973. And th- those three first mentioned with catfish by the blue and Kenny Holtzman won 20 plus games. Last time a team has ever won, I had a three uh, pitchers win 20 games in a season and then to win the world series in 73, 74, 
But then they get traded back to seven to uh, to Cleveland after the '75 season. Uh, when Catfish went to the New York Yankees as a free agent, Charlie Finley actually called me and said, "Ray, we're going away from pitching and defense to offense and speed," which meant that Joe Rudy, who was playing uh, left field, went to first base. Gene Tennis, who was playing first base, came behind the plate, and I went to the bullpen. So I got in very few games in 1975 ended up going back to Cleveland. But one caveat in the 1975, the three years I spent in Cleveland and in Oakland after being traded, my wife was from the San Joaquin Valley. So when I got traded, my in-laws, the late Bernice and John Mancuso, uh, had three daughters, one of which was my wife. And they got a chance to watch me play baseball in 73, 74, playing the World Series. And I believe God is very strong because after the 75 season, I went back to Cleveland. I was happy to go back to Cleveland, but I was thinking after my career had ended as a player, I'm thinking, wow, that was amazing to leave Cleveland, go to Oakland for three years, then go back to Cleveland and resume my career before uh, becoming a free agent. Census is a podcast about a player's time in Cleveland. We're going to glance over his time in Oakland and, and Ray speaks to it a little bit in the in the previous uh, soundbite. So, again, he got to play on part of two World Series champion teams. And for any player, it's got to be a pretty special time in their career. Um, but this is uh, our tribe history, not our athletics history. So not to downplay by any means his accomplishments in Oakland, but we're just going to kind of glide over that. And just as angry as the papers were when Ray was traded, when he came back to Cleveland, they were equally as excited. And Ray had mentioned he was kind of frustrated with uh, his playing time in Oakland. He wasn't seeing the field as much. But uh, coming back to Cleveland, he was excited because the Tribe had a pretty young pitching staff he was excited to work with. And he just felt like he was a more mature player and ready to take on a a bigger um, role with the team. But even when I went back the second time, I didn't want to leave. And uh, I had a comment that was made to me when Jeff Torboy took over for Frank Robinson. There was a meeting between the manager, the general manager, and me, and I was told that there was rumors around Cleveland that I couldn't wait for the season to be over so I could go to free agency and leave Cleveland. And I said, where did you hear that? And then I was told, uh, I can't tell you. And I said, well, it's a lie. Because the last thing I ever wanted to do was leave Cleveland the first time, and especially to go back the second time, I thought, okay, I went to Oakland for three years. I'm back in Cleveland. I can complete my career. But then at the end of the 77 season, I played in 76, 77, and back in Cleveland at the end of the 77 in September, I was picked up by the Seattle Mariners. Um, uh, Lou Gorman was the general manager. was going to try to sign me uh, to a contract, which I didn't sign. I signed with Milwaukee. And that career was shortened because of all the injuries I had sustained. But, you know, it, it was a time in Cleveland that I didn't want to be traded. I think that's the most important thing I want fans in Cleveland to understand that, you know, I didn't want to be traded. And I was. I had no – I wasn't a free agent at the time. I was traded. I had no recourse except to be traded and accept the trade to Cleveland – or to Oakland from Cleveland and play for the Cleveland, uh, the Oakland Athletics. And, and you know, again, unlike what uh, the late Kurt Flood did when he was traded – uh, when he said he tested the reserve clause, you know, he set the stage for free agency, which also became in 76 after the 76 season. But bottom line, I wanted to be a Cleveland Indian for my life. 
And I, I was hopeful of being there right now as we speak that uh, I would still in some capacity be working or staying in Cleveland and doing something for the Cleveland Indians. In Ray's second stint with the Tribe, perhaps one of the most memorable games he ever got to catch uh, as a member of the Indians was Dennis Eckersley's no-hitter. And Eckersley was entering a period of, of his career where he was almost literally unhittable and clearly he threw a no hitter so he was unhittable in that game but the game before and the game after were both pretty special as well memorial day of 1977 and the the thing that happened um frank robinson i think had been fired prior to that uh and jeff torbord took over and he brought uh, fred kendall and me into his office and i remember jeff said i know both of you are number one catchers but I can only do certain things. And so he said, Ray, you're going to catch this guy, this guy, and Freddie, you're going to catch this guy, this guy. It was four-man rotation at the time. And as it turned out, I caught Eckersley's no-hitter. And if you look at his numbers prior to the the no-hitter on Memorial Day 1977, I think it pitched 12 innings the game before and something like nine innings of a no-hit game then – and then pitched the no-hitter of nine innings against the Angels, winning one to nothing. And then the next game he pitched was against the Seattle Mariners, the Kingdom. Rupert Jones had a home run to end the streak. He came within an inning or so, and it can be looked up. And I, I don't have the numbers exactly, but he came very close to tying Cy Young's consecutive hitless innings that was broken up by Rupert Jones. But the game at Municipal Stadium on Memorial Day, and everybody knows in Cleveland that if the weather is good, where is everybody out on the lake, out on the boats, enjoying the beaches, having a great time. And we had a game in the evening, and that game on Memorial Day. And, you know, people, you, you could probably ask 300,000 people, and they would say they were there. And there were not that many people. And it was just a game that um, Dwayne Kuyper, oh, boy, I, I'm trying to think of my memory. I think Dwayne Kuyper hit a triple. Jim Norris drove him in with a sack fly. Frank Sanana was pitching for the Angels. Frank Sanana at the time was a mid-90s hard-throwing left-hander, and Dennis Eckersley was the drop-down sinker slider. And, I mean, it was was a game that that went quickly that I remember, a game that, you know, Eck was just Eck. I mean, he was painting. And, you know, at the time, you know, they they now have the the umpiring – uh, Quest Tech, whatever it might be, they, they grade the home plate umpires. So, you know, pitches that might be a little bit off the plate today are called balls because the umpires are graded. Well, I mean, I, as the game progressed, and Eckersley's control was so fantastic anyway that I just kept moving outside. I remember the, the late Bobby Bonds came up playing for the Angels at the time, and he said uh, when he looked down, he saw me almost in the left-hander's batter's box so far off the plate. And he said to the umpire, he says, can he get a little bit closer to home plate where I might have a chance? But, you know, at the time, umpires got really involved in. They knew what was going on. They wanted to be a part of history. And But uh, the thing that I remember, the game was not televised. WKYC, uh, I think Channel 3 in downtown Cleveland, got word that Eckersley was pitching a no-hitter. And they hurriedly went down to the stadium. The only shots of that no-hitter, are of, I think, the last two outs, and it was a strikeout. I pumped my fist. That came, comes in and jumps in my arm, similar to what Yogi Bear did with Don Larson in the 56 World Series, just the opposite. And Eck with his fist up, Buddy Bell's coming in, 
And that was it. And uh, I mean, in today's world, that would be a classic game of a no hitter uh, with Eckersley pitching. But, you know, it, it was something that uh, because of the circumstances, I ended up catching Eckersley, the no hitter and the next game, because even though I don't think that I was supposed to catch Eck, it would just worked out that way. But because I had, and they were not going to break up any possible superstition, especially following the no-hitter. And, you know, the, the Johnny Vandermeer, back-to-back no-hitters, you know, you think about records to be broken. Johnny Vandermeer's record I don't think will ever be broken, and I can, I'll, go on, uh, I'll go on and say that because uh, if you break his record, that means you have to pitch three consecutive no-hitters. And what is the likelihood? I, it's not that it's impossible. But every time a pitcher pitches a no-hitter, Johnny Vandermeer's name comes up because he pitched back-to-back no-hitters. But you just don't see it. And from my recollection, that's the last time it happened. So I caught Eckersley in his no-hitter. I caught him the next game. And I take the blame for calling a fastball to Rupert Jones that he had a home run to end it. And, you know, but, uh, but Eck was a great pitcher. It was a great thrill for me to catch his no-hitter. And then to fast-forward, when he became one of the outstanding closers of Major League Baseball, for me to broadcast his 300 save and actually interview him down on the field following his 300 save. So to catch his no-hitter in 77 and then to be a part of the broadcast team for the A's and uh, interview him on the field prior uh, following his uh, 300 save, that was, to me, pretty exceptional. But uh, to catch his no-hitter, I was very happy to do that. I called a combined no-hitter in Oakland uh, with four pitchers as we had won the, the division, getting ready for the postseason. But to catch Dennis Eckers, the no-hitter will always be at the top. And especially to remain friends with Dennis Eckersley and have him say that he could not have done it with my, uh, without my help. I mean, that, again, is, is something I'll always remember coming from somebody who uh, accomplished a major uh, award. I mean, a no-hitter. It's so rare. Perfect games, even more rare. But to pitch a no-hitter, the way he did and to be a part of that was something I'll always remember. To summarize a little of what Ray had said there too. So Eckersley had gone 12 innings on a game uh, in late May against the Mariners. And after the fifth inning, he didn't allow a hit. So, uh, you know, almost the equivalent of a no hitter there. And then on the, uh, the faithful game against the angels, um, paper said Dennis Eckersley finally achieved the goal of every pitcher by firing a no hitter to beat the California Angels one to nothing at the stadium last night. This is it. This is the max! Exclaimed the 22 year old right hander who was mobbed on the field by his teammates and many of the 13,400 fans after the final out. There to meet Eckersley was Ted Bonda and General Manager Phil Seggy. They announced that Eckersley was to be awarded a $3,500 bonus with his no hitter, and that Ray Fossey, who caught it, was getting $1,500. There was a pitch total for Eckersley. He had thrown 114 pitches, 83 were fastballs, 31 breaking pitches, and 35 were outside of the strike zone. And then uh, that next game on June 3rd, Eckersley carried a no-hitter going to the bottom of the sixth, and with two outs is when that home run was giving up. So you think about a stretch of of great pitching in Indians baseball history. That is uh, a top 10 uh, stretch of, of pitching. Eckersley was literally unhittable for almost the record Cy Young had. Toward the end of the 1977 season, Ray was traded to Seattle where he saw action in 11 games. And then he ended up finishing his career in Milwaukee uh, playing in 19 games in 1979. And that was the end of Ray's playing career. 
Now, he did find himself a nice niche with Oakland in, uh, on the air, whether it was radio or TV, and has been a part of the broadcast for over 30 seasons. However, Ray's time with Cleveland still continues on. In 1993, he was at the closing of Cleveland Municipal Stadium when he was uh, he played an old-timers game, and he also got to catch... Uh, Bob Feller uh, and an honorary first pitch when they did an around the horn with some great Indians uh, legends. And then in 2001, he was voted a member of the top 100 all-time greatest Indians players uh, for catcher. So if you go out to Heritage Park before a game or during a game and check out the wall downstairs that's got the signatures from all the top 100, you'll see Ray's on there. And that, in a nutshell, is the conclusion to our two-part episode of Ray Fossey's career as a member of the Cleveland Indians. I had a lot of fun talking to Ray, and like I said, I had to pare down uh, what went into this podcast because we talked for quite a bit. So I didn't. I tried my best, and that's why I did two episodes to make sure I included everything. And I, uh, I hope you liked it. Uh, Got to figure out what next week's topic is going to be. And uh, until then, thank you for listening to Our Tribe History presented by Progressive. I look forward to uh, joining you again next week. You've been listening to Our Tribe History presented by Progressive with your host, Indians team historian, Jeremy Fedor. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro.